Hello, everyone, and welcome to Fidelity Connects, a Fidelity Investments Canada podcast, connecting you to the world of investing and helping you stay ahead. Earnings season is in full swing, and eyes are on the big banks to see how much of an impact, if any, the SVB chaos has had on the sector. What are some of the big movers to watch out for in the near future? And why is today's guest putting a soft landing on the table? Joining us today to unpack the latest market action is Fidelity Director of Global Macro, Urian Timmer. With host Pamela Ritchie today, Urian shares that the interest rate picture is not hurting the economy, but it's hurting what seems like isolated pockets of the economy. We are still making new all-time highs with revenues in a very steady way, with the caveat that inflation is eroding those nominal numbers. We'll also hear from Urian with additional thoughts on the Federal Reserve, commercial real estate, smaller banks, gold, Bitcoin, and more. Today's podcast was recorded on April 17th, 2023. And per usual, Urian will be sharing some charts. So please head to at Timmer Fidelity on Twitter to follow along. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of Fidelity Investments Canada ULC or its affiliates. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be construed as investment, tax, or legal advice. It is not an offer to sell or buy, or an endorsement, recommendation, or sponsorship of any entity or security cited. Read a fund's prospectus before investing. Funds are not guaranteed. Their values change frequently, and past performance may not be repeated. Fees, expenses, and commissions are all associated with fund investments. Great to see you, Urian. You've had some world travel since we saw you. Great to see you again. Yes, nice to see you as well. Where have you been? Uh, I was in uh, four countries in 11 days. Just flew back last night. So I was in London, um, Holland, Germany, Hamburg, Germany, and then Dublin. And uh, I did a I, I, I did a bucket list event, but it was not my bucket list. It was my 95-year-old father's bucket list. And really? he always wanted to go to uh, this, uh, the most advanced, acoustically advanced concert hall. He's a big classical music aficionado. Uh, and that hall, that music hall is the, uh, the Elf Philharmonie in Hamburg. But, you know, at 95, it was becoming more elusive. So a few months ago, I said, Dad, pick out any show you want and I'll, and we'll take you. And so we did that last Thursday. So we had a Bach work conducted by very famous uh, uh, British conductor, John Elliott Gardner. There was a trifecta, a top composer being conducted by a top conductor uh, performed at a top venue. So it was, uh, you know, it's all about making memories, right? Especially when your parents are getting older and uh, that's what we did. So it was was a wonderful trip. That sounds so special. Yeah, I got kind of goosebumps there listening to that. I'm, I'm very glad you did that. It's nice for us to have you back, though. Um, it's been quite... Uh, a week last week, we saw a lot of the U.S. big banks coming out looking like they could be singing from the treetops in, in terms of earnings. Um, that said, we really get into the earnings story further this week. I think there are a lot of people biting their nails. What should we should be looking for here? So again, for slides, please head to at Timmer Fidelity on Twitter. We'll start things off today with the slide earnings estimate progression tweeted by Urian on April 18th. This will be followed by S&P 500 revenues, which is also the next tweet. You know, the market continues to thread this this needle. Uh, it, it's really fascinating because, you know, this has been, so the market's gone 
nowhere since last June, right? Basically, the market's been in a rate in a trading range for now 10 months. And, you know, myself included, a lot of us have sort of been waiting for that shoe to drop. Like, okay, you know, we know how inverted the yield curve is. We know that historically that has a perfect track record of foretelling a recession, although it's, you know, stubborn, it's frustratingly difficult to pin down that eventuality. So we, but we, we see, we see the writing on the wall. Uh, but the actual recession, of course, hasn't happened and the U.S. economy remains reasonably resilient. So so here's the earnings line. So this is first uh, first quarter earnings season started last week. As you mentioned, the, the, the big mega banks reported um, and they reported really good earnings. And we can talk about that in a moment. But generally speaking, we're in an earnings slowdown, even a contraction. So this chart shows the expected growth rate. Um, so anything obviously below zero is a contraction. So Earnings are contracting, and this first quarter is expected to come in at minus eight, second quarter at minus six. Um, but it's it's a it's a margin story more than a real like a basic economic story. So if we go to the next slide, uh, which is revenues, so this is sales, the top line. You can see that revenues per share, which are shown here in nominal terms, because that's generally how we think about earnings and revenues, and obviously. In real terms, given that the inflation uh, rate is still at around five or six percent, uh, this number, this line lo looks a lot different. But in nominal oh, terms, sorry, can, I, can I just ask you about that yeah. nominal? I mean, earnings are booked in nominal. That, that's the way it works. But we're looking at revenues there. That's part of obviously the earnings story. At what point, when we see inflation flattening, do we look more at sort of the real story? Yeah, it's it's really fascinating. It's a great question. Um, and earnings and sales generally is not something like when I do a very long term chart, I always do this in inflation adjusted terms, but, but nobody really talks about earnings in real terms. So what will happen is during recessions or periods of higher inflation, like we are in today, um, earnings tend to get inflated for obvious reasons, because inflation is kind of keeping those numbers higher. Um, and, um, and at the end of the day, investors basically they look through that by not paying a high multiple for those earnings. So that's that's the transmission mechanism of high inflation periods. But but it is interesting that that revenue slide and maybe we can bring it up shows you that you know we're we're still making new highs, new all time highs in a very you know steady way. Again with uh, you know uh, with the caveat that inflation is eroding those those nominal numbers. So. This is an economy that continues to chug along. And of course, we had the, the employment report um, uh, recently, and that shows, again, still an ongoing expansion. The unemployment rate's at 3.5%. Next, let's take a look at U.S. employment, tweeted on April 18th. And so the question is, you know, the Fed has raised rates almost 500 basis points. Um, so by the way, this chart shows the unemployment gap. So unemployment relative to what is considered to be full employment, which is around 4%. And so you can see that we are near the strongest parts of the cycle. And in the bottom there, you see the layoffs. And layoffs are rising, but they're not, you know, skyrocketing. And, and most of the layoffs are in the tech sector. Um, so it's still, so the economy still seems to be doing okay, despite the fact that the Fed has really slammed on the brake. And so the question, of course, is like, where, where is the disconnect? Um, and maybe we pull up slide one to show the, 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 the Fed chart. 
That chart, the Fed and the market, which is often updated, but at the time of recording, was last tweeted on April 10th. And my my theory is, and it's you know not something that I came up with, but it's it's a plausible theory. My theory is that the economy is just less rate sensitive than it has been. I mean, you mentioned SVP or SVB earlier, and obviously uh, Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank and First Republic Bank, a few others are rate sensitive in that they are seeing deposits flow out while they invested those deposits in much lower yielding bonds back a few years ago. So it's not that the rate picture is not hurting the economy, but it's hurting, it seems, isolated pockets of the economy. And one way to think about this, uh, you mentioned the large banks reporting earnings and they were pretty good earnings reports. You know, if you're JP Morgan, not, not to single out any name because I don't do individual names, but uh, you know, the really big banks are paying basically zero on their deposits, right? So generally, when you think about a yield How do curve, they get away with that, by the way? I mean, is that is that <laughs> going to keep going on or? Um, it, it's it's it, it's a really good question, because what happens historically during uh, Fed tightening cycles is that the deposit rate does go up, but with long lags, right? So banks are very quick to raise rates on your credit cards or whatever else or mortgages but they're very slow to raise them on what you're earning at the bank. And that's that's always been the case, but it's been especially the case during this cycle. Um, and um, and I think for the, mo- for the most part, people don't really, I wouldn't say they don't care, but they don't think of it. They, they think as their money at a bank, not as a yield seeking, you know, instrument, but just the convenience of having money in a bank and having it safe, having, you know, be having it be at a, at a strong bank. And so the average deposit rate is half a percent and the Fed funds rate is almost 5%. So my, my guess is that the reason the economy is so resilient still is that, you know, a bank, like a small bank, like SVB, well, that doesn't exist anymore, but a small bank is going to feel the pinch very quickly because they have to fight for those deposits and pay higher rates for that. A large bank does not because they are a large bank. They're too big to fail. And so from them, from that perspective, the normal kind of credit crunch scenario that you get from an inverted yield curve, right? You're borrowing at a higher rate than you're lending or investing. That's not really happening with the really big banks. And the same thing could be said for homeowners, which, you know, it's, it's probably different in Canada, but in the States, most people have a fixed rate 30 year mortgage. And the, the vast majority of outstanding mortgages today were issued in 2020 and 2021 when rates were super low. So the average consumer with a mortgage is not really feeling the rate pinch either. And then many corporates uh, refinanced their debt, termed it out for longer periods, also during that low rate period in 2020, 21. So a lot of the economy kind of has become in, you know, immune to these sharply rate, uh, rising rates. And so that's my guess as to why the yield curve is not biting as quickly maybe as it might have in the past. That's so interesting. And I'll ask you because you can only probably answer it you know, with nuance for the US, but are homeowners that have gotten interest rates at low rates, as you say, but either those entering the market over the course of the last 12 months when interest rates have about, is there a sense that they're getting used to higher rates? I mean, we had a discussion, I think last week, that you know it's not all time rates, 5%, is not an all-time rate, an all-time high rate. Um, will we get used to that globally? Will we get used to that? 
Um, I yes, I mean we we always have in the past, and again, you know, five or six percent is not you know ten to fifteen percent as it was in the early eighties, but but you know the math of home affordability does kick in, right? Because home prices, as you know, rose significantly during COVID. Uh, and I'm sure in Canada that they did the same thing. Um, and then on top of that, now we've had rates go up. So when you just think about the affordability of how much house can you buy, how much mortgage payment can you afford? And the cost of buying a home has, I think, almost doubled, uh, at least a few, as of a few months ago when rates were at their highest point. So it's not going to deter anyone from buying a home, but they just they just can't buy as much home as they did before. But what we see in the real estate market here is that the market's kind of frozen, right? So people are not going to give up their 3% mortgage and then take on a, a 6% mortgage for a different home somewhere else unless they absolutely have to. And that would be, you know, getting a different job or there's a life event or so. Um, and so it shows you that the activity in the real estate market has really ground to a halt uh, for understandable reasons. Yeah. So interesting. So just going back to sort of what's been going on in the markets, obviously the rate rises are what we're talking about. We're going to be looking at comparables going back a year on many different fronts, whether it's how much liquidity is in the market, whether it's the earnings story, the comparables are going to start to be very, very interesting. Can we just zero in on QT? That's been going now for over a year. We're a year on into that. Sort of amazing to think. Um, Are we reacting or not? Um, so this is really interesting. So the Fed, I think, is actually effectively threading its needle in terms of, you know, having provided liquidity to the banking system, which, of course, that those headlines were already a month ago, uh, but providing that that lender of last resort lifeline to the banking system, while at the same time not pivoting on their policy of raising rates and um, shrinking its balance sheet. Fed assets is next tweeted on April 18th. So this chart shows the Fed funds rate. Uh, the gray bars is the, is the system open market account. That's, that's the part of the Fed where they buy, you know, where they do QE or QT. And then the purple bars are loans. Um, and those are different programs at different times. But right now it's the BTFP, the bank term funding program. And you can see that um, that program, of course, ballooned when SDB went under. But it's stabilizing now, um, and that's obviously a good sign. And it's doing so while the Fed continues to shrink its its system open market account, as well as raising rates. And of course, the question is how much, how many more rate hikes will there be, and how much more QT will there be? And of course, the Fed meets next uh, uh, in May, so that's that's uh, a month from now. And uh, the 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 expectations are about 50-50 as to whether they will do one more. 25 basis point rate hike, but no matter what, uh, the market expects you know a pretty rapid pivot after that, and that's not new. The Fed is the market has been looking at that for months, and the Fed has been uh, continuing to push back on that dovish narrative. And it's interesting; uh, it's a good um, opportunity to mention. And you know, I've, I've the last few weeks I've been geeking out by uh, reading um, a book called The History of the Federal Reserve, which is like this you know, multiple thousand page tomb of uh, the history of the Federal Reserve, like an actual biography, because I've been trying to understand the nuance of the difference and the similarity between now and the 1940s. Of course, you and I have been discussing that analog for three years now. 
Um, and because in the 1940s, the Fed kept rates low as the debt burden increased because of the war. Um, and inflation expectations never really got unanchored. And the Fed was able to relatively easily keep long rates down. And, and so um, uh, we can talk about this maybe next Sunday because I'm doing a whole write up on this. But it's really fascinating to see how the Fed today is different from or similar to then. But uh, but the point of uh, uh, the point of this is that there's a difference between a one-off price inflation um, shock, if you will, which is what we got after World War II in 1946 and 7, because we had price controls back then. And once those price controls got lifted, obviously you had this pent-up movement higher in prices, which produced a 20% inflation, but it was a one-time adjustment. And then after that 20% inflation uh, happened, everything settled down. And so a one-time price inflation shock, I think the Fed would not be that worried about. And that was the Fed's line, you know, a year ago, transitory, you know, famous last words. That's a big difference between a series of structural increases in prices, uh, often created by monetary inflation, by monetary policy being too loose. And that, of course, happened in the late 60s and 70s. And so to give you a long, a long answer to a short question, my sense is that the Fed is trying to prevent that structural inflation from happening um, because it realizes that this was brought on in part by temporary price shocks because of COVID lockdowns, et cetera, but in part also by a very loose monetary policy. Yeah, it was it was able to be to be able to do that. Um, a few questions coming in, Yuri, and I know you've done a bit of a deep dive on this recently um, on the U.S. dollar, the trajectory, ultimately what it means. Um, and I mean, we're also trying to figure out what it means then for the Canadian dollar, obviously. But um, tell us about the drop off in the value of the U.S. dollar. There's a, a, a school of thought out there that thinks the dollar is going to lose its reserve status and. Uh, is going to crash in some hyperinflationary, you know, uh, ball of flames, and I, I, I don't think that that's going to happen. That that line of thinking has been around for forever. Um, um, but the dollar clearly is weakening. So the terminal rate, the ex expected uh, highest rate that the Fed will get to, spiked to 5.69 when Jay Powell gave his um, testimony in front of Congress, and then it collapsed after the banking uh, run with SVB, and now it's sort of recovered a bit, but it's at around just below 5%, which means that the Fed is expected to be pretty much done for the cycle. And the dollar is now retesting its lows. You know, it kind of feels like a like a cyclical peak has been formed. And I think that I think that makes sense, right? Because the reason the dollar was going up in part because was because the Fed was uh, uh, tightening policy uh, much faster than other central banks or uh, against other central banks actually still easing, which would be the Bank of China and the Bank of Japan. And so now that that um, divergence, uh, that policy divergence has been resolved, it makes sense for the dollar to go down. And, and you know, maybe uh, another um, layer of that would be that, you know, we do have a debt ceiling showdown coming up. Um, uh, House Speaker Kevin McCarthy is in New York uh, making a speech tonight about uh, the Republican stance on that. But again, going back to my work on the 40s, which we can discuss next week, um, uh, this notion of a Fed that is not as independent as it used to be, um, as uh, rising rates start to you know, be felt in terms of 
budgetary considerations, how much money is spent on debt service, things like that. Um, I think that might play part of this, uh, a role in this as well. And that would argue that the dollar could indeed start to weaken here or continue to weaken. And of course, this has implications for the Canadian dollar, which would then be strengthening. It also has implications for the global cycle, which is more divergent, where China is now coming out of its COVID recession. Now, next up are two emerging markets slides, which have not been tweeted recently. So please keep an eye on Urian's latest tweets to see if they are featured. Again, that's emerging markets. Emerging markets, uh, so this is a chart of the EM index. You can see in the bottom there, when you look at the 10-year rate of change of EM versus U.S. stocks, uh, it looks a lot like the 10-year, like the U.S. dollar. So if the dollar is going to be weaker, and again, I'm not calling for a collapse or anything like that, but if it's going to be cyclically weaker, EM equities should do well, and actually non-U.S. equities in general should do well. And the, the China cycle, which is on the next page, uh, kind of adds to that because China, of course, has been counter-cyclically against the U.S. cycle, uh, been, uh, you know, been kind of on a lockdown the last couple of years because it was the last to reopen after the pandemic. And you can see in the bottom panel that the credit cycle in China has significantly improved as the government is easing policy there to try to bring every, bring the economy back to life. And that purple line tends to lead the relative performance of EM earnings versus U.S. earnings by about two quarters. And, uh, and you know, like clockwork, that orange line is now hooking up. So uh, all of these things to me uh, suggest that the dollar has cyclically peaked um, because of this rate divergence ending. And that on top of that, we should have a performance, a, a period of outperformance by non-U.S. equities, especially emerging markets. So is there a... Uh... I mean, are there calls actually to to buy the U.S. dollar as it as it gets a bit lower, as you say, you know, sort of is cyclical and, and structurally maybe could get stronger? Is that where do you see that? Um, well, I mean, according to the, the that monthly chart, the, the the peak was only put in a few months ago. Once you're in a downturn, and again, I'm not looking for any kind of crash or de-dollarization or anything like that. But once a cyclical downturn is is in uh, in place, it tends to persist for a while. So um, I, I would just I, I would ride this trend out for a little while, um, and uh, and I think you know it, it'll be good for economic growth. Uh, you know, basically, no country wants a strong currency, including the U.S. So uh, so I think it's generally a, a, a bullish phenomenon as long as the decline. Is orderly. Global earnings growth is next. At the time of recording, it was last tweeted on March 1st. Coming back to the earnings uh, uh, picture, I've shown this chart uh, many times, but this is the rate of change of forward earnings estimates by country or region. And you can see that the black line, which is the US, continues to fall. We're now at minus 4% growth in forward earnings. Uh, the purple line, which is um, Europe, is advancing. So Europe is kind of the stealth winner here. And the red line, which is emerging markets, that looks like it has bottomed for the cycle. So we have for the first time in a while, uh, kind of a desynchronized global cycle where non-US earnings are advancing relative to US. And, uh, and, and if it's one thing we know from history is that relative performance falls relative, follows relative earnings. So I do think that this is a trend that will likely persist.
Okay, fascinating. A couple of questions uh, rolling in here about going back to real estate just for a second. So um, do you have any concerns around the U.S. real estate, particularly sort of the offices story and and the commercial real estate story that we are hearing a lot about right now? Yes. So uh, so office real estate, commercial real estate in general, clearly there's um, a big story there. Uh, Loans or, you know, basically Tenants are handing back the keys saying, yeah, no thanks, you know, or, or they, or when their lease comes up, they renegotiate for less space or at a, at a lower price. So clearly that's a, a problem if you're an owner of commercial real estate or, or, you know, REITs or any kind of like, you know, CMBS, collateralized mortgage uh, obligations, things like that, uh, or commercial mortgage backed obligations. Um, so there clearly are problems there. So when you think about Problems in the economy, commercial real estate is one, um, and the other one, you know, are the smaller banks, which are, again, seeing deposit flight, either because it's going into money market funds in search of higher yields, or because it's going to the larger banks uh, because it's deemed to be safer. Um, and so you could see a credit crunch among the smaller banks, and it's no surprise that um, smaller companies, if we pull up slide eight, actually, this is the Russell 2000, which are uh, the smaller companies in the U.S. stock market. That would be the slide small caps tweeted on April 18th. You know, that part of the market really is is barely off the low. So so there are, so this, yeah, this is the Russell 2000. So very close to the low still for the cycle. So those are, those are the pockets of, of risk. Uh, but they're also pretty well known by now, right? So everyone knows commercial real estate is a, is, is a mess that, um, uh, that, uh, you know, um, either private, you know, investments are being gated or there are just losses. Um, uh, but the question is, how big is this? You know, and, and some people think, well, this is like subprime in 07 and subprime was small, but the contagion it created was not. Uh, I'm not prepared to, to take, to take that leap, especially now that the Fed has backstopped. Um, you know, any, any liquidity issues with the banks, but, uh, but those are, those are the hot pockets. Uh, and so far, you know, they're known, which is sort of half the battle. Okay. Question on gold. Um, you know, vis-a-vis the U.S. dollar story. Uh, okay for gold might add Bitcoin in there, but gold is the question that's coming in here. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, gold commodities, uh, Bitcoin, non-U.S. equities uh, or non-U.S. assets in general all, of course, benefit when the dollar goes down, A, because they're priced in dollars, and B, because it creates uh, certain um, uh, certain themes in sort of monetary inflation and things like that, debasement. And so, yes, I continue to be bullish on gold and, and Bitcoin. You know, it's down at 29000 today, but I, there's it's not a coincidence that Bitcoin is going up as the dollar is going down. And again, this theme, which is not really discussed very much, not yet at least, but this theme of will the Fed really remain as independent as it has been as the, as the, the, the reality of debt financing at very high debt levels really, you know, comes, comes to pass in the coming years. And I think the Bitcoin and the gold play are really a, a reflection on that, as is the weaker dollar, because it, again, the, the weaker uh, a strong dollar is strong for for many reasons, but one of them is is the independence of of the world's most important central bank. Um, and just final note, they picked up 
uh, viewers have picked up on your hard hat, I think, in your <laughs> office there. What's that for? It's not for a crash or something, is it? Uh, no, no, it's it, it, it's not some, uh, uh, what do you call it? Uh, some subliminal message. It's uh, <laughs> I, I, many, many years ago, I presented uh, to our Fidelity Real Estate Department uh, ah, and okay. uh, and as a as a memento, they gave me my own hard hat. Uh, but so, <laughs> I, I I have I have been uh, tempted to wear it on TV once in a while, but uh, I don't think my compliance people would like that. Very probably like so. Either wears the sun hat. It's nice and sunny <laughs> there. Um, that's fantastic. You've set us up for the week. Any final thought on to zero in? What do we need to watch most closely? It's probably earnings, but what would you say? Uh, it, it's it's earnings uh, and and really. I would say revenues, um, because that gives you a sense of the top line. We all know that the bottom line, that margins are coming down because inflation is eroding, uh, you know, earnings. Um, but so earnings, revenues, and, you know, any word from the Fed um, as to not, not so much whether they raise one more time in May. I mean, who cares? Uh, another 25 basis points after 500, you know, among friends. What What is that? But but in terms of that expected pivot afterwards, I do think the market is overly optimistic for that. And it and it does highlight a disconnect that the market um, simultaneously expects earnings to hold up more or less while the Fed pivots in a way that it would only do when you have a recession. And those things like don't make they make sense individually, but they don't make sense at the same time. So if the Fed does uh, end up pivoting, it becomes one of those be careful what you wish for types of situations. Right. Okay. Yuri and Tim, we're so pleased that you could set us up uh, this week. We look forward to seeing you next week and uh, have, have a good week yourself coming up. Thank you very Go much. Have a good week. Yuri and Tim are head of global macro at Fidelity joining us here on Fidelity Connects. Thank you for listening to the Fidelity Connects podcast. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to Fidelity Connects on your podcast platform of choice. And if you like what you're hearing, leave a review or a five-star rating. Fidelity mutual funds and ETFs are available by working with a financial advisor or through an online brokerage account. Visit fidelity.ca slash howtobuy for more information. While visiting fidelity.ca, you can also find information on future live webcasts. And don't forget to follow Fidelity Canada on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thanks again. We hope you join us tomorrow.